Well, in my brief ministry, I've often hear, had, had people say to me uh, something like this, you are more of a teacher than a preacher. And sometimes I've had people put that in kind of a positive way. They've said something to the effect of, I feel like I've been preached at my whole life and I haven't gotten anything out of it. And I like the way you present the truth in a thoughtful, uh, more reasoned way. And other times it's come to me as real disappointment, I think. It's like the person who once said, you spend so much time setting the table that by the time the food comes out, I'm not hungry anymore. You know, and I know that I'm good at explaining things and I'm not a as good at taking people by the collar and, and kind of uh, driving the truth into their lives. But I want you to know, we use the words preaching and teaching a little bit different today than the Bible uses them. We often use, um, we often think of the difference between the two as content and application, like teaching is giving the content of the truth and preaching is making an application of the truth. And that's not a bad way to think of it, but you need to understand the Bible doesn't use those two words in that way. The word preaching, as far as we can tell, refers to a person explaining and applying the gospel message. That's called preaching, whereas teaching it has more to do with a person informing and calling people who have accepted the gospel message to live out the message. And that's kind of an interesting thought, but whatever my personal strengths or weaknesses are when it comes to imparting the truths of Scripture, we can be assured that the writer to the Hebrews didn't have that problem. This is a, a written sermon that was meant to be read. It's evident, not only in the way it's laid out, but in the fact that in the end, he says, bear with my brief word of exhortation. And what's interesting about the passage is that he both explains and applies the text, and he does that throughout the letter. Um, he informs his hearers of certain truths, and he exhorts them, and he does that very strongly. The, the writer to the Hebrews gives a lot of really interesting information. Like the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the first chapter where he talks about the superiority of Christ to angels. That's not a subject that we think about a lot, but something that his hearers apparently were very fascinated with. And uh, when, when he does that, he stops and he gives a very clear exhortation to respond in a certain way. It's called a warning. And there are five warning passages that punctuate the book of Hebrews. In each one, he talks about the superiority of Jesus to something. First, it starts with angels. And he does it in a very interesting way. He does some exposition, like he did in the first chapter. Then he has a warning. And then he goes on with the same theme, and he does some more exposition, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, where he talks again in a little more depth about the superiority of Jesus to angels. Then he moves to a new theme. The theme is superiority of Jesus to Moses and the revelation that Moses brought. And he does the same thing. Exposition, warning, exposition. He does that throughout the book. And the warnings grow in their intensity until you come to the last one in chapter 12. Now, essentially, up to this point in the letter, he, he has said that uh, Christ is superior, superior to angels. In fact, angels, he says, are just the servants of creation, while Christ is the agent of creation. He's the means by which God created the world. In the last verse of the first chapter, he says that it's not only true that angels are the servants of creation, they are the servants of the people of God. 
So he says, are they, not, the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are inherit, to inherit salvation? In other words, the whole purpose of angels was to serve us who believe, those of us who are part of God's purposes, who have a relationship with God. The son is the agent of creation. He's the head of the people of God. And uh, the angels are simply servants. They're servants of the created order. They're servants of the son of God. And they're even servants of the servants or the people of God. And then he starts the next sentence. If you look at chapter two, as we read it just a minute ago, with the word therefore. Um, Literally, it says, because of this. And he means because the son is so superior to angels, because he is in every way their Lord and master and they are just the servants of creation, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. Now he uses a nautical term here to drift away and it's a very clear image that anyone who's ever been even out in a rowboat and tried to do some fishing might have in their minds. If you want to secure a spot where you find fish and you want to fish there, then uh, you put an anchor down. And if the anchor doesn't firmly grip the bottom of the lake, then what's going to happen is your boat's going to drift and soon you'll be out of the place where you want to be, away from the place that you wanted to be firmly fixed so that you could catch fish. And here, his uh, image is of a ship on the ocean. It's not simply a rowboat, but a larger ship. And understand that in the ancient world, they didn't really have um, harbors, at least not many as we have today, where you could take a ship into a place. They didn't have docks and those kind of things like we have today. Any ship had to anchor out in the open sea close to the land and then ferry people into the land. And so the anchor was very important because if the anchor didn't hold firmly, then the ship was going to drift and it was going to drift into the shoals, the shallow water. It might run aground there. And once a ship ran aground, it was almost impossible to get it off. It would just eventually be broken up by the surf. Or it might run into the rocks at the shore. It would be destroyed. And so this is meant to picture like the vivid danger of not firmly gripping the truth. That's the obvious image here. Not gripping it so firmly that it holds you through some kind of careless negligence or ignorance of something that you need to know. If you didn't grip onto the truth, you're in danger of drifting away from it. And the danger in the passage is stated very clearly. He doesn't come to it to verse 3, but he states it clearly. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? In other words, it's our very salvation, our deliverance from eternal hell that is at stake. If we neglect what it is the writer is talking about, we're going to find this to be true in every warning passage that he comes to as he moves through the book. Our whole understanding of what salvation is all about comes into play when you come across a verse like this. You know, um, can I really have assurance of my final salvation if... The Bible contains warnings that tell me that I need to be careful not to drift away from it. Is it possible for a person to only assume that the gift of eternal life belongs to him or her and um, not to actually possess it? So what exactly is the danger that the hearers are, are in? What's the nature of the warning? Well, unfortunately, at least for what we want to think about today, 
that's not the subject he's going to delve into. He's going to get into that, but you're going to have to wait, and we'll have to discover together exactly what it is the danger is that the hearers are facing. But now we just need to hear the word of warning, which is stated clearly. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, I want you to trace with me, if you take a Bible and look at it, I want you to trace with me how he moves to what it is he wants to say. Essentially, he compares two things. He's going to do this throughout the book in many varied kinds of ways. But essentially, he compares the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. He compares those two things. Um, the people of God under the law, you might say, in the Old Testament, and the people of God under grace in the New Testament. The whole system that the Old Testament presents and the whole system that the New Testament presents. Now, I know that people have a common understanding of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it usually goes something like this. The Old Testament system was demanding and it was exact. It was based on the law that God gave, a list of rules as to how people ought to live. And uh, it, the New Testament system, the idea is, was based on grace. And grace is easier than law. God is not so exacting under grace. He was demanding and intolerant of sin and angry. And now that Christ has come, he's tolerant and he's merciful and he's kind because of Jesus. And I, and I understand that feeling. And, and many people who read parts of the Bible have this understanding of that. But I have to tell you, that's only a very superficial understanding of how these things work. And it's kind of like a half-truth is no truth at all. When you have such a superficial understanding, you're in danger of, danger of completely misunderstanding the relationship between the law and grace and what it meant for the people under the law compared to what it means for those of us who now live under the rule of Christ and under the reign of grace. It's not enough to think of it in those ways. Law was demanding, grace is tolerant, that's not going to carry you through a life of discipleship, and that's why he gives his warning. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And here's why, verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Then he goes on. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard him, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. Now, what he does here is he contrasts the Old Testament and the New Testament, but he uses an argument that is sometimes called the argument from the lesser to the greater. And um, I, I, my wife's mother is, uh, as many of you know, she has cancer, and and we've spent a lot of time there. She's almost 90 years old. She's lived a wonderful life. We've had a great opportunity, individuals of us, to sit with her and talk with her, tell her our love for her, and she has expressed it back, and she's ready to go home. She told me this week, the Lord will take me when he's ready. And uh, I was there the other day. Laura has six siblings, five, five living siblings, and they're all there, and they're all really annoying most of the time, I find. But, you know, <laughs> because... Um, Laura and I met when we were 15. It's kind of like we grew up together, and we knew each other's parents really well. So I was laughing with, um, a week or so ago with some of the family members about how Laura's father was. He has been gone for a number of years, but 
um, he, they, they've all shared these stories of growing up in this household with a number of children. If their father disciplined one of them, like he sent them to their room or he said, you can't talk on the phone for a day or whatever it was. And if you, one of the children, if you cried, he would say this, I'll give you something to cry about. I'm sure no one else ever heard that when they were growing up. That is not something my parents said, but that's, that's something he said. I'll give you something to cry about. That's called an argument from the lesser to the greater. Let's break it down. He's saying to them, um, if you think that tiny little consequence of not talking on the phone for a day, if you think that's a big deal, just wait until you see what's coming next. And this will be small potatoes compared to that. That's what he meant. And he said that. And here the writer compares the Old Testament message and the New Testament message. The Old Testament message, he breaks down in a number of ways. He says, first of all, verse 2, it was binding. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. In other words, God himself established it. It was authoritative, this message, the law that had been given to the people. It was fixed. You could count on it. It had authority over your life. And how did you know it was binding? Well, that's the second reason every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That is, the law was a system of natural and logical consequences like good parenting. And if you violated certain things, there were natural and logical consequences that followed from it. So you were obligated to keep it, and its violation brought consequences. But it was merely declared by angels. Now, that's not the point exactly of verse 2. He doesn't say it was merely declared by angels. It was important because it was declared by angels. God used his secret agents, so to speak, his servants of the created order, order, his servants of the people of God, to mediate the law to the people so that they had it. And that's something stated throughout the Bible. Interestingly, you don't gather that from Exodus 20 and 21, when God comes down and he speaks to the people of Mount Sinai. But later it's explained that God came, Deuteronomy 32, with myriads of angels to give the law. And it's stated in the Psalms, it's stated by Stephen, the first martyr in Acts 7, when he's preaching that the law was given by angels. It's stated by Paul in Galatians chapter 3. There's all these passages where it says, the law was mediated to human beings, was passed on to us by an act of the angels. Even though it was binding and it had consequences, the law was given by angels and that underlines its special importance. It was very significant. But then look at the New Testament message. He, he turns it around. The gospel message, the middle of verse 3, was declared first by the Lord. Then it was attested by those who heard him, the eyewitnesses, and then God himself confirmed it with signs and wonders and miracles of the Holy Spirit. So if you thought the law was binding and authoritative, demanding attention and careful obedience, which it was, then consider the difference between that and the gospel. The law was mediated by angels. The gospel came, well, just like the law says, every testimony needs two or three witnesses in confirmation. In this case, there's three. The Son of God himself spoke it. The eyewitnesses who heard him confirmed it, and God himself testified to it. It uses the word testified as an indication that this is a, presenting it as something just like the law requires. Under the Old Testament, it was very difficult to convict a person of murder. It, even more difficult than today, because you had to have two or three witnesses. 
which meant, using our terms, your fingerprints on the murder weapon by itself, if that's all there was, was not sufficient to convict you. There had to be at least two forms of evidence, preferably three, in order for a person to be convicted. And the idea of not confirming anything except by two or three witnesses comes through here. It was declared at first by the Lord, that is Jesus himself. It was attested to us, the writer says, by the eyewitnesses who heard him, though the writer, interestingly, doesn't put himself in that category. It was attested to us, the hearers, by those who heard Jesus, which means Paul did not write the letter to the Hebrews, as was thought at one time in history. And God also bore witness through the Holy Spirit in visible ways which confirmed the message. Let me just say a note about that. This is a bit of an aside, but this verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will, one of the purposes of the miracles in the New Testament was to confirm the message of the gospel. And one thing we find that's interesting when you read the story of, the, uh, of a redemption that the Bible contains is that there are three generations presented in the Bible, three periods of time in which there was a lot of miraculous things going on. The first was a two-generation period of Moses and Joshua. During that time period, those two generations, there were all these miracles that confirmed the law. Later, when the prophets were calling people back to obedience, there was a two-generation period of Elijah and Elisha in which there were a great number of miracles that confirmed the message that the people needed to return back to the law. And the third one you have is in the New Testament, where you have a two-generation period, the life of Jesus and the apostles. And during that time, there was a great amount of miraculous activity of God. And this says it clearly. It was done to confirm the message of the gospel. God bore witness to the reality of the gospel message. Now that by itself does not in any way say that miracles do not happen today. They do. In fact, we find in the Bible that in between those very large time period, those time periods in which there were a large number of miracles, miracles occurred. God can always do miraculous things. So he can do it in our day. However, we have to acknowledge that at least in terms of the story of the Bible, the way it unfolds itself, we would not necessarily expect that they would be in the same number or size as those particular periods in history when God was confirming his message for human beings. And this at least seems to imply that God himself bore witness by signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, the sentence doesn't even need to say what the previous sentence says. The law, he underlined, was binding, and it carried consequences. He doesn't say that about the gospel because he doesn't need to. He's just pointing out the way in which it was attested involved the Son of God himself, the eyewitnesses, and God by the Holy Spirit doing it. But the idea underlying is, if that's true, the gospel must be even more important to listen to than the law. The law, which was binding on people and said, if you violate this, certain consequences follow, the same must be true. So apparently, it must not be simply a one-time acceptance of this message that matters. It must be a holding fast to this message. It is absorbing the meaning of why he would say in the first verse, 
Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. It's not simply your initial response, but there's something that needs to go on in order for this to be important to you. It's kind of like dropping an anchor. To drift means, in this case, not to be firmly anchored in the truth. To have the anchor only grip the mud bottom and be dragged along while your life is sent by the various winds in various directions and pulled whatever way it might be, See, in American Christianity, we have a tendency to ask, it's kind of like the least common denominator, what is the least amount of information a person needs to have in order to become a Christian? That's the way we approach the question. What's the least amount of information a person needs to have? And we come up with an answer that actually is a very good answer, John 3.16. We hold it up at you know, football games and things like that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And it's true. That is true. That is a summary of the gospel message. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners has eternal life. The problem is the Bible doesn't approach the question from the standpoint of what's the least amount of information that you need to have. It seeks to give us the most information, believing that at some point as we gain that information, whether it's when we first hear John 3.16 or if it's after years of attending meetings and listening to someone speak. In either case, what is the information that you as an individual need in order for the anchor of the truth to be gripped into your heart and not into the mud bottom of your life? You see, salvation, salvation is not the prayer that you prayed with mom when you were six years old and she was putting you to bed. That she wrote in the cover of her Bible that said, Tommy prayed with me this evening to receive Jesus Christ. That's not salvation. Thank God that may be the commencement of salvation in your life when that happens. But salvation is a living faith that goes on and continues to trust in Christ. Salvation doesn't depend on when you feel bad opening the cover of your Bible and seeing what mom wrote when you were six. That's not salvation, even if it's a good memory. Salvation is not that list of sins when you went to camp in ninth grade and there was a bonfire and you wrote your sins on a piece of paper and you threw them in the, in the fire and you said, I want to forsake these things and give my life to Christ. Uh, it, it's not that you can just look back to that as the reason that you are saved and you belong to God. Thank God your relationship with him may have started at that point. It may have been a very real thing that you did, or it may just be a memory of childhood that you carry as you grow up then into adulthood and your life drifts off into other things, and it's still a memory that's there. Maybe it's connected with a good feeling that you had right at that point. That's not salvation. Salvation is a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. You're not saved because you went to college and you went to a series of meetings and you had some kind of emotional experience in which you felt the presence of God. And you were with other people who loved Jesus if that did not result in a change of direction, a sense that things are different for me because of what happened that night, 
And even though I may uncomfortably do things I shouldn't do, I know that it's wrong, and I know that my life needs to move in a different direction, one that is towards God. I can't just live the way everybody else lives around me, making up things as they go along. I thank God that may have been a real experience. But the only way you know it was a real experience is not because it's a memory, not because it's written in the front of your Bible or anything like that. You only know it because of what's going on now. In other words, faith, true faith in Christ, is not simply an historical experience in a person's life. It's not simply what they did with mom when they were a child or, or when they were a teenager or whatever point that it was. It's possible that such experiences are like casting an anchor overboard in real hopes at that moment of grasping the Savior, but it was only cast into the mud bottom of the human heart, and the heart must be changed. The gospel changes hearts. Faith in Christ changes hearts so that the truth grips. And that's why he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, before we finish, I'd like to just give you a, a glimpse of the final warning in the book. If you take your Bible and turn to chapter 12, the series of warnings uh, ends in a rather long passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It really starts in verse 18 in chapter 12. But what he does is essentially an expansion of what he does in the first warning. They're not all quite like this, but he just contrasts what the people had under the law with what we have under the gospel. He says under the law, you had these things when the, the God came down on Sinai, there was a fire and smoke and God himself spoke and people heard it. And Moses said, I tremble with fear. But he says, you've come to something far greater than that. Verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering and so forth and so on. And then he comes to the warning proper, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Mount Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. In other words, God is going to so change this world order that the present system will become a new heavens and a new earth, and it will involve the complete destruction of what is now in order for God to bring in wet that which is to come, a removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that, that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God, New Testament, our God, grace, Christ, God's love, our God is a consuming fire. Now, let's be clear about what we're doing when we meet here on Sunday mornings. The scriptures are open and read. We sing together. Someone like me stands up and seeks to explain them and apply them. What I'm really trying to do is to help you adopt and apply a certain mindset in life. 
and nothing less than that. It's really, what I'm trying to do is help people build a worldview, and it's a worldview antithetical to that which you hear day after day and to which you're exposed as you walk through this world naturally. And that mindset is an approach to life, and it's an approach to life that says this world is not my true final home. That's what I'm trying to get you to adopt. It's not hidden. It's not like there's some subversion going on here when I really want to change your way of thinking, but I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you up front. That's what God calls people like me to do, to take the word of God and seek to help shape people think their th- uh, shape their thinking in such a way that they realize this world in its present form, though it's a part of, though it is God's creation, it's important, it's valued. We don't devalue it or think that there's, um, that, that it's somehow evil in and of itself. It's not, what we believe is that this present form is only temporary. It's only like a precursor, a beginning that God is going to fulfill in the future. And all, when I talk about this world, I don't just mean the physical state of this world, though that's going to be changed as well, apparently. It's not just the physical state. It's the standards and the values and the behaviors that characterize this world and the way that we live and the way that we think. All of those things, all of those standards and values and behaviors that are not in line with what God created us to do and created us to be, all of those standards and behaviors and values that are not from the word of God, that are not empowered by the Holy Spirit and the lives of people who possess eternal life, all of that that is connected with this world are destined for the trash heap of the universe all the pomp of this world, all the ways in which we value external appearance over internal substance, all of the vanity of life that is connected with possessing things and believing that those who possess the most somehow have won in the race that we're involved in. All of that, all the structures of this world that promote one class over another, they're all destined to end. It's only temporary. We're all caught up in it, at least if we're left to ourselves. If we're left to ourselves, we'll adopt the values and standards of the world around us. We won't realize that those philosophies are only temporary, that they may seem very powerful right now, and people may say you're on the wrong side of history, but history, last time I checked, was really, really long. And it's hard to tell who's on the right side or the wrong side until you come to the end. That's going to reveal who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. And left to ourselves, we'll live in those ways and by those standards and values. But what I'm telling you is, this book tells you God is calling us to a different world, to a better world. In reality, it will be this world made of the same material, remade, reconstituted, refashioned into new heavens and a new earth without sin. And what I'm trying to do is to convince you that you shouldn't spend all of your time and all of your attention on this world, that you shouldn't be so enticed by all of its trifling little decorations and caught up in its supposed values. I'm trying to convince you to take hold of the kingdom that cannot be shaken and to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, again, as we come before you, we praise and thank you that you call us to a better world and a better way of thinking. And we know that uh, 
the way you call us to live, at least in this world, creates a clash of values. We pray that you would strengthen us, that we might face that clash of values as we go through this world, that we might face it with a sense of confidence and love and grace. We might look to you and ask you to reorder our disordered thinking. It's true of all of us in a sinful world to reorder it so that it might reflect the values of the kingdom of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.